This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, and welcome to Self Work. I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I'm a clinical psychologist out of Fayetteville, Arkansas, and gosh, I've been practicing for over 25 years. I began this podcast to expand the walls of my practice to those of you who might be very interested in psychological, emotional issues, might even be in therapy yourself, but also to those who might have been initially diagnosed with anxiety or depression and you're looking for answers. And then, of course, there's the third group, to those of you who might never darken the door of a therapist but are just curious enough to listen to what someone like me might say or perhaps have to offer. So welcome to all of you. Today we're going to be talking about depression, and I'm going to base what I have to say from a Harvard article that was updated in June of 2019, so it's really recent research. What this article talked about was the relationship between your brain and depression. Now, I'm not a scientist nor a neurologist, so I'll share with you the basic way I understand these things. Definitely the old chicken and the egg question applies here. We're not really sure what comes first, depression or neurological changes. But what I want to get across quite clearly is that depression is way more than a chemical imbalance. I've read that that's what pharmaceutical companies want you to think, because if you think, well, I've just got a little too much of this or not enough of that, then taking a medication would be your answer. But depression, even neurologically, is far more than a chemical imbalance. That's why, of course, the same treatment that works for one person doesn't necessarily work for another. Your depression is unique to you. I have divided this into two parts because there's a lot of interesting information to cover. So today is part one. We'll touch on the parts of your brain that actually change from what looks normal when you're depressed. We'll touch again on the role of our genetics, your what's called your genetic predisposition. Your genes act as traffic lights for your entire biology. They turn things off, turn things on. And before you stop listening or turn this episode off, know that I'm going to make this information as understandable as I can because one, I want to understand it and my way of understanding it is pretty simple, but also because I want you to truly get the picture of just how complex your neurological response to depression can be. Please check out the show notes because I will include a very helpful graphic from the original article. And of course, the actual link if you'd like to read the article in its entirety with a lot more detail that I'm going to actually offer. The listener email today is from a former patient of mine who told me that something I had said years ago stuck in her head. And she'd like to know what I think now about problems in her relationship. The same thing she was actually talking about 20 years ago. She asks, when is enough enough? And how much disappointment in a relationship is normal? So let's sit back together and talk about what changes in your brain when you're depressed. (music) 
I'm going to start out today with a quote from this Harvard article on depression. It's often said that depression results from a chemical imbalance, but that figure of speech doesn't capture how complex the disease is. Research suggests that depression doesn't spring from simply having too much or too little of certain brain chemicals. Rather, there are many possible causes of depression, including faulty mood regulation by the brain, genetic vulnerability, stressful life events, medications, and medical problems. It's believed that several of these forces interact to bring on depression. So as I said in the intro, we're going to pull from this Harvard Review article, and the link is provided, to get a sense of what's going on in research on depression and how it affects your mind and your brain if you're experiencing it. What's important to remember is that this research is going on right now, so the answers, quote-unquote, are incomplete. In part one, which is today's episode, we're going to cover two of the areas they mentioned, only two. We're going to be talking about the areas of the brain that you can see on brain scans actually change when you're depressed. It's just as real as a broken bone. I remember the first time in graduate school when I saw a scan, a brain scan, of a depressed person's brain and a non-depressed person's brain, and that was 30 years ago. Now they have even more specific ways of measuring and scanning. Do you remember that old commercial with the egg frying in the pan? said, this is your brain. This is your brain on drugs. Depression can make certain parts of the brain become more active or less active, develop a really dysfunctional way to communicate, or even get smaller or larger, depending on whether or not you're depressed. For example, they're finding that the hippocampus of depressed women is significantly smaller than those who aren't depressed. The hippocampus is simply an area of the brain. And they're also finding that this has to do with stress. And we'll talk about stress more specifically later. But stress can cause the hippocampus to create fewer nerve cells or what are called neurons. So it actually gets smaller, meaning it'd be sort of like, think of your hippocampus as the size perhaps of a walnut. And then you get stressed and it's going to be the size smaller, like a pecan or pecan, as you might say. So actually, the hippocampus itself will create fewer new nerve cells, and nerve cells are what make it up. So it gets smaller when you get stressed, or that's what that study seemed to find. So this engendered some research on, is it really the amount of neurotransmitter that changes the structures in your brain, or is it something else? This idea that depression isn't only a chemical imbalance, meaning too much or too little of something, is reflected in the way antidepressants actually work. Think about it. When you take an antidepressant, you're adding synthetic neurotransmitters into your brain that mimic the real neurotransmitters that are in your brain, like serotonin or dopamine. But you don't immediately feel better when you begin an antidepressant, do you? It usually takes some time before it kicks in. One reason that they're wondering about is that obviously just adding more of a neurotransmitter doesn't work. What they're now considering is that it isn't the amount that changes your sense of being depressed. What it could be is how the neurotransmitter, the pill you're taking, affects the rate at which new neurons or nerve cells are created. You add a pill, you add a medication, and now new nerve cells are born. 
let's see if we can use an analogy to help with this. Let's say I believe that the amount of baking powder in a cake would lead to a certain size of cake. Two teaspoons would be a medium cake. Three teaspoons would create an even larger cake. But this new research says it's the baking powder itself, not the amount that creates a bigger cake. It's the chemical reaction that the baking powder has on the other ingredients that cause a change. Hopefully, that makes some sense. Now, if you're really fascinated by this, again, go to the Harvard link that you'll find in the show notes, and we'll give you a lot more detail. Now, that doesn't mean that your neurotransmitters in your brain aren't important. They are. What are neurotransmitters? They are naturally occurring chemicals that relay messages from neuron to neuron, the nerve cells that are the communicators in your brain. Think of neurons as small cans tied inches apart from each other with a long string connecting them. Each can can send a message to the next can. So when one neuron or can sends the message to the string to go, the next neuron goes. If it says stop, the next neuron starts the stopping process. And each neuron, after it releases its message, begins the process all over again. Basically, you're either perking up the communication between nerve cells or you're slowing them down. If you've ever searched online for how the antidepressant you might be on actually works, you'll see the neurotransmitters that that medication truly affects. Lexapro, for example, affects primarily serotonin. Wellbutrin, primarily dopamine. In fact, if you've heard the term SSRI, that means synthetic serotonin reuptake inhibitor. Really fancy term for basically it's going to create a change that helps your brain have more serotonin. The uptake will be inhibited, meaning it will be slowed down. So you're going to have more of it. So when your doctor is listening to your symptoms, they're hopefully tuning into what the different neurotransmitters control and prescribing the specific one that might be helpful with you. It's really fascinating when you think about it. The second thing we're going to talk about are your genes. Now, that's not (laughs) J-E-A-N-S. That's G-E-N-E-S. The genes that are in every cell of your body control what's going on, and your mood is no exception. I'll quote again from the Harvard article. Throughout life, different genes turn on and off so that, in the best case, they make the right proteins at the right time. But if the gene gets it wrong, they can alter your biology in a way that results in your mood becoming unstable. In a person who is genetically vulnerable to depression, any stress, like a missed deadline at work or a medical illness, can then push this system off balance. You can hear again the role of stress. Now we're going to talk more about the stress response in part two, but again, they're linking stress and the structures of your brain, stress, and now your genetic functioning. One of the huge things that points to this being important is that we know that depression and bipolar disorder run in families, as does anxiety. Studies of identical twins who share a genetic blueprint show that if one twin has bipolar disorder, the other has a 60 to 80% chance of developing it too. If one fraternal twin has bipolar disorder, the other only has a 20% chance of developing because they don't share genes. Now, I've quoted other research 
and other writing, especially by Dr. Michael Yepko, who I quote often, that you can learn how to be depressed from those around you. You can absorb certain destructive or victimized attitudes. Those attitudes may lead you to adopt thinking and feeling patterns as you mimic what you see and hear. So this kind of research is a little bit confusing because how does that learning affect the way your genes function? I don't know the answer to that question. I just think it's interesting. But we do know that your genetic makeup influences how sensitive you are to stressful life events. For example, why do some people have trauma in their lives, but they never dissociate? Other people do dissociate, and even others develop dissociative identity disorder, or their identities actually fracture into more than one identity. Now, we're going to be talking about the impact of stress and trauma again in part two. But remember, those genes, those traffic lights going off and on in your brain are important. You can see now that it is far more than a chemical imbalance. What I hope that this episode has shown you is that our neurological system and how it functions is far from simple. The different regions of the brain and how neurotransmitters affect them or how the medication you take affects them what the neurotransmitters are themselves, and how they help nerve cells communicate. And then there are your genes that are programmed from birth to turn on and off like streetlights as they direct traffic, so to speak. And when that direction goes awry, then your mood can become unstable. If you go to your psychiatrist now, there are now tests that actually can predict which medications might work for you based on your genes. I'll include a link to the Mayo Clinic article on just this technique. It's very exciting and can help people not have to try medication after medication because the test will actually show which medication you are much more likely to respond to. Most primary care doctors don't do this test, but more and more psychiatrists are doing it because it saves so much trouble for their patients. But what I want you to walk away with more than anything, if someone tells you depression isn't real, it's in your mind, you just need to pull yourself up by your bootstraps, remember, you can see depression. It's real. And its complexity is only beginning to be understood. Of course, medication can help, but so can other modalities like exercise, again, stress reduction, and mindfulness. All can affect what your brain looks like and it's functioning. More in part two. I was delighted this week to hear from someone I actually saw as a patient more than 20 years ago. She found me just by searching online, which blows my mind a little bit. But here we go. She asks a question about disappointment in marriage. I found your website recently, and I was thinking about something you said to me when I was your patient many years ago. I was in my mid-twenties. This was 20-plus years ago, unbelievable as that is. And I'd been married for about five years, and things weren't going well. Actually, things have never gone well, pretty much from the moment we drove away from the preacher's house after saying our vows. My husband was immature and honestly emotionally abusive to me, and I was telling you something about us, and you tilted your head to the side and said it all sounded bass awkward. <laughs> I have to laugh at this. This is obviously not a graduate school term that I learned, but my Arkansan coming out, I guess. 
Sadly, I can't remember exactly what I was telling you, but no doubt it was one of the many exchanges between me and my husband that simply weren't right or acceptable in any way. I had been mostly resolved to leave my husband, and I could tell that you probably thought that was best and certainly justified. I was unhappy and suffering from one of the many depressive episodes I would come to endure. But then I changed my mind. And when I told you about it, I recall the look on your face and how you carefully chose your words, not telling me that I was wrong in what I had decided, but I knew that you didn't think I was right. I've thought about that moment in my life many, many times in the years that have followed. Not surprisingly, nothing really changed in my marriage. I've stayed with it, but all along the way, I've considered when I might get out, when it would be okay to finally exit. I'm struggling with that question now. I've continued to deal with extended episodes of severe depression, and I've re-entered therapy and found a good psychiatrist to help me deal with it. But the old question comes back to the marriage and to those discussions I had with you all those years ago. And I'm here at the same crossroads I was when I was in my 20s. I'm not exactly sure why I'm writing you, except to say that, first of all, you did help me all those years ago, even if I probably took a wrong turn in my decision-making process. I'm glad to see your website and your podcasts, and I've been slowly making my way through them and plan to do more this summer. I find your perspective helpful and clarifying. I have a second reason for writing, and that is to ask a fairly simple question about what is normal. Do you think that it's normal to spend the entirety of your marriage thinking about how nice it would be to be done with it, how much happier you would be on your own? I don't think that people are fully honest about their most internal thoughts and feelings, but I think they often are with their therapists. And so, as I come to this problem of mine again, I thought you might be willing to tell me if you think that a lot of married people continue to keep an escape plan in the back of their minds. I have always done this always. You know, as a therapist, often you hear a client or a patient, whatever you call them, go in a direction or make a choice that your gut, your mind, your experience suggests to you at least that it's not the right way to go for them. It is very sad. Of course, you could be wrong. I've been wrong a lot. Sometimes I like to be wrong. I don't want what I think to be right to be right. But this obviously made me sad for her. So here's my response. It means so much to me that you remember our work together, and I, of course, am glad I helped in some way. And I'm sad for you that depression has been such a mainstay in your life. That sounds like a very difficult emotional and mental battle. The fact that you've had the questions you have, have reared your children, and I'm sure accomplished other things is much to your credit. As far as your question goes about marriage, here's the best answer I have. Yes, our partners are disappointing. Yes, we have the same frequent irritations we always have because they may have tried to change but don't really want to or see the need. And we do the same thing to our partners. But that said, having continual thoughts that life would be better if you weren't in it, there's something very wrong there. In a healthier marriage, there's a sense of the good outweighing the bad, the tender experiences balancing the disappointing. It's true that research shows that women aren't as happy married as men are, although you'd never know that if you talk with some men. But if you have an escape plan constantly in the back of your thoughts, then that either keeps you not in the present because of individual issues, but it sounds more in your case as if you want it done 
and you have a very good reason for that. Of course, I don't exactly remember what kind of abuse you were talking about back 20 years ago, but if you're calling it abuse, I'm sure it was and is. I hope the professionals that you are now seeing can help you identify what's normal ambiguity, what may be fantasy, and what is abuse. And of course, there's also the importance of the relationship between what's happened in your marriage and your depression. It could be either exacerbating it or certainly adding to it. Good luck to you, and I hope the rest of the podcast will be helpful. Please take very good care. For those of you who've been listening for a while, you know that I was in an abusive marriage, and I also grew quite immune to the abuse, not realizing the impact it was having on me until I got out. I was telling a patient, I figured out that I'd been arguing with my ex so much about my own self-esteem, trying to tell him that I thought I was a good person, and arguing with him about that, at least I had some good values, that it wasn't until I got out of the marriage that I realized that it was just in the fighting with him about my self-esteem that I'd actually had some sort of pseudo-esteem. I had to build true self-esteem when I got out. And luckily, my husband now of almost 30 years has helped me do that. And so have my friends and family, and so has what I do for a living. So if that's your journey, please realize that you can find your esteem outside of an abusive relationship. Thank you so much for tuning in today and listening. I cannot tell you what doing this podcast and you being listeners does for me. I've actually been through a very difficult time recently personally with the loss of of my brother, and knowing that I would come back to the podcast and my blog posts and feel like I was helping has helped me get through this time. I'm available to you in lots of ways. My email is askdrmargaret at drmargaretrutherford.com. My website, drmargaretrutherford.com. You can subscribe there, and it's a really easy way to receive both my weekly blog post and this podcast. Nothing else, I promise. I'm over on Instagram, Dr. Margaret Rutherford. I have my professional Facebook page, which is also facebook.com slash Dr. Margaret Rutherford. And I post my own articles there, but others that I find interesting and intriguing and can hopefully help you grow. And I have a closed Facebook group, which is now almost 1,100 people, which is fantastic. And that's at facebook.com slash groups slash self-work. Again, thank you for being here. Please take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and this has been Self Work.